Well, then let's um, turn again to Ruth and chapter 3 on page 308 in the Church Bible. And in verse 8, we read that at midnight, the man was startled and turned himself. And there, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a redeemer. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a redeemer. Now I mentioned before the reading that when Naomi and Ruth arrived in Israel in Bethlehem, they were in desperate need. They were both very poor, they were both widowed, and Ruth, of course, was a stranger. But by faith she immediately goes out to glean in the fields, and as we read in the Bible, it happened. God saw to it that it happened, that she began to glean in the fields of this man, Boaz. And we saw how God used Boaz to provide for Naomi and for Ruth. And they both knew that God had used him, and that it was God who had looked after them. And by by giving her on her first day there five times as much as she would expect to receive, uh, it was a clear teaching that they needn't worry that God would do abundantly more for them than they could ask or think if they would continue to ask him, if they would ask, if they would knock, and if they would seek, it would be given, it would be opened, and they would find There's some indication that five may represent grace in the scripture. If so, we can relate it more easily. Abundant grace if we seek it. Now she continues to glean in the field of Boaz. And as the days pass, her mother-in-law, Naomi, begins to conceive a plan. And that is plan is essentially to bring Ruth and Boaz together. Now, her reason for that is just that she is concerned for her daughter-in-law, and it's a twofold concern. First of all, she's just concerned for her welfare generally. She's a young widow from Moab, and she has no children, and that means that her life is bound to be hard, and it's going to get harder. She's also concerned for her personal fulfillment and happiness. As a young woman who has just embraced the true faith and coming to a strange country, uh, she feels that she does need a husband. And of course, we're to remember here all the time that unless God calls us to singleness, we are essentially made to be married. Man and woman together make a whole. And I'm sure Naomi is burdened 
that Ruth would find someone that is of the Lord so that she could marry in the Lord. Now, I hope we understand that concern, and I hope we share it. As parents, that we have that concern for our own children, too. There's nothing as important as our godly young women finding godly young men, and our godly young men finding godly young women. It should be a prayer of ours, a concern that that should be so. The interesting thing is that Naomi here feels that she needs to give it a start. What she does here would be called today matchmaking by some people, I suppose. And you might ask, well, is it wrong to do that? I would say, well, no, not if it's wisely done, or better still, if it's spiritually done. If it's spiritually done, it's prayerfully done. This woman obviously has some insight into the character of Ruth and her spirituality and the character of Boaz, her own cousin, and his spirituality. It's with that in mind and with that kind of prayer that she gives a prompt and moves something in the right direction. If you're not approaching it with that wisdom and with that prayerfulness, genuinely, it's best not to indulge in it at all. Just leave it be. And I think Naomi takes her time here until she feels that God may be in this union. Now, she keeps tabs on Boaz. Obviously, she does. And she knows where he's going to be this particular evening. And that's at the threshing floor, because the work of threshing has just begun. When the harvest has been gathered, it's then time for the threshing. The threshing takes place on a part of the field that is just set apart for that. It's pressed very hard, a bit like a cricket pitch in the middle of the, of the larger pitch. There's a small strip that is beaten very hard. Now, what you would do in threshing is just very simple. It's, although it's hard work, you would throw uh, the barley into the air. It would separate uh, the husk from the kernel. The chaff would fly away, and the barley itself would fall to the ground. It was the same with the wheat. Of course, some of the Psalms mention that. Psalm 1 tells us that the ungodly are like the chaff, that the wind blows away whereas the godly are like a trees planted beside rivers of water. Now, when, um, when they do this, uh, they, they tend to stay until the work is done. So they would camp there, sleeping beside the mounds of grain. And uh, at night, they would just wrap their cloak around themselves, just like the old Scottish plaids. Uh, you would do that in the evening when you lay down. To rest. Now, Naomi's plan is just this, that Ruth uh, dresses well, makes herself fragrant. Of course, she's respecting modesty when she's doing that, but nonetheless, she is uh, dressing well and being fragrant. It reminds us again of Cromwell's words that you pray and uh, keep your gunpowder dry. So she does what she does. She's go to the threshing floor. She's got to be discreet. She's not to make herself known there. There's plenty of places to hide amongst the huge mounds of grain. And as the day is coming to a close, she's got to watch his patch where he lies down to rest. And then when night falls, as he sleeps, she's got to make her way to where he is and lift the edge of the blanket and lay down at his feet. 
And that's it, she says. Nothing more. From that moment, she says, you do what he tells you to do. Now, that should immediately alert us to the spiritual dimension of this, because Naomi's, in a sense, almost putting out a fleece. Uh, she's leaving it to him. You say nothing, but just do what he tells you to do. Now, Ruth knows that this is all to do with marriage, which must have been very difficult for her because, as we'll see a little bit later on, she's taken the initiative where perhaps she wouldn't have been expected to take an initiative. And, and she knows it's got to do with marriage. She, she's effectively taking a lead and proposing to Boaz. Now, there's no doubt, like I say, I'll come to that later, but there's, there's no doubt that we're meant to see everything that happens here in a spiritual as well as in a, a natural light. After all, Boaz is called here by Ruth herself a redeemer and her redeemer, and we're to see him as a type of Christ. Now, some people may say, well, is it fair to see him as a type of Christ here? Because would, would Ruth herself have seen him as a type of Christ? Well, my answer to that would be that it's possible that she doesn't fully understand that at the time, but I would be quite sure that she certainly understood it later, that she would be able to make a very close connection between her Redeemer and the Redeemer of Israel. Why not? After all, she is being taught as the main part of her faith that God is providing a Redeemer for Israel. That's what she's believed in. That's what she's trusted. That's why she's ceased spiritually to be a Moabitess and has now become an Israelite because she believes in God's Redeemer. So, however much or little she understood of that at the time, I'm quite sure she reflected on it. And we should reflect on it too and see this transaction at the threshing floor as something to do with ourselves and the Lord, something to do with ourselves and our Redeemer, as well as something between Ruth and Boaz. Something to do with a marriage, yes, but something to do with a spiritual relationship too. So I want to look at it at both levels with you. And first of all, um, just say something generally about the importance of marriage, whether it's natural or spiritual. I mentioned a minute ago in connection with natural marriage that it's something Naomi wanted for Ruth. It's something Naomi wanted for herself. It's something that Ruth wanted for herself. And however unfashionable it may be to say it, it is something both men and women ought to desire for themselves. And I mean that I'm not even going to say that it's something women should desire for themselves. I'm saying that it's something men and women should desire for themselves. It's the way, unless God means an exception, it is the way God meant us to be. We were made for that union naturally. It is not good that man should be alone. When God said that, he didn't provide him with another few men or whatever, but he provided him with a woman. There is something about man and woman together that makes a whole. 
And spiritually, that is so too. We were made for spiritual union. And we were made for spiritual union with God. When God first created man, male and female, they were indwelt by the Spirit of God. I don't think we can doubt that. I don't think we should doubt that, that they were spiritual people, that God actually indwelt them. And that's the way humanity is meant to be. That's the way you're meant to be. There is something just a little less than human about you if the Spirit of God is not indwelling you. I mean, that's a thought. That's the way you are meant to be. And that, in fact, is the way you will be in glory. I mean, when, when God finishes the work of sanctification in you, he doesn't somehow leave your heart. He continues to dwell there. Humanity began with the indwelling of God's Spirit, and humanity will continue with the indwelling of God's Spirit. So as long as you are right now without the Spirit of God in your heart, there's something lacking in you that ought to be there. And it's in that connection that I want to draw your attention to Naomi's words in verse 1 of chapter 3, where Naomi says to Ruth, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you? I mentioned in the reading that the word is actually the word rest. Now, is that not beautiful? Because what Naomi wants here is a marriage, and she calls a marriage rest. That's what our marriages should be. In this natural world, they should be rest. We should have rest in our home at the hearth, God willing with children if he gives them, rest in love and rest in friendship. When we think of the English word rest, if we're familiar with the Bible, we associate it immediately with things like heaven and things like the Sabbath day. And our marriages should somehow be the same. Now, if a marriage is not like that, for whatever reason, well, pray that the Lord would transform it. And pray that the Lord would transform it in connection with the person that you're married with. He can do that. Now, in the spiritual marriage that our soul needs with God, the same is true. It's rest that we need, and it's rest that God provides. That's the purpose of that marriage. The great Augustine said, the uh, Christian theologian of the 5th century, he said that our restless souls are restless until they find rest in you. And that's why we need Christ. We need a spiritual marriage. All our souls need that. He is our Sabbath. He is our heaven. He is our rest. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, the rest that Christ gives isn't something that he just gives apart from himself, as though I was to pass something to you. When he says, come unto me, and I will give you rest, the union, the rest comes in union with himself. It's in the act of coming to him and being united to him by faith, being joined to him, that we find rest. He is our rest to have him in our heart and in our life is to find rest for our souls. And that, friend, is what you need to have yourself. Um, it's the rest that you long for deep down. You're a restless person. I know that you are. 
If you're, if you're not a Christian, I know you're restless. It's sad to say sometimes as a Christian you can become a bit restless too. And the reason for that is that you don't have enough of Christ. Christ brings rest and peace into your heart. You need more of your beloved. Now that is what Naomi is uh, calling Ruth into. And she knows that Boaz is the right person. But how does she respond? Does, does Ruth know that Boaz is the right person? Well, interestingly, she says to her mother-in-law in verse 5, All that you say to me, I will do. All that you say, I will do. Now, it's interesting here that she accepts the guidance of her spiritual guardian. It's right to do that. It's still right for us to do that, to accept the guidance of those who are our spiritual guardians, parents in the Lord, ministers and elders. Unless that guidance is coercive or unless it's plain unbiblical, then it's something that you should still, all things being equal, accept. It's easy to um, overlook that, to think it's unimportant. But we need to be open to the guidance of our spiritual overseers. Now let's uh, begin here even with natural marriage. It's very easy to overlook the input of minister, or elders, or your parents in connection with this question. When you're choosing a husband or a wife, and of course, they both make a choice, does it matter to you what the parents think or what the spiritual rulers of the church into which you are born and baptized, what they think? Does it matter too much for you? No, of course, at one level, people are happy enough to do it in a kind of cultural way, providing it doesn't mean too much. In other words, you still sometimes find that men will go to the father of the woman concerned and ask permission. But I don't know very often if permission is really being asked for. It's nothing more, perhaps, than a ritual. But ought that to be so? Now, I'm not going to argue for what people call arranged marriages, which are probably every parent's dream and every child's nightmare, maybe. But I do want you to remember that so-called arranged marriages in the Bible are not the phenomenon that we are familiar with today. It's a very different thing. This idea of snatching children, of course, girls usually, and forcing them to marry people, it's got nothing to do with what we see in the Bible. In the Bible, when a marriage was arranged, if that's the word we want to use, there was always the power to say no. It was important that it be voluntary, and I'll come to that in a moment. For example, when Isaac's wife, um, sorry, when Abraham sent his servant to find Isaac a wife, the, the question was put to her, do you want to go with this man? Will you go with him? 
Now, you may want to say that there was a lot of pressure on her at that time, and that may or may not be true, but even if it was true, she had the power to say no. That's obviously the case. She had the power to say no. But I don't want to focus on that side of the thing. I want rather to focus positively on the importance of seeking the input of your spiritual guides. Isaac paid serious attention to Abraham, to Eliezer. Rebecca paid serious attention to her own home, and so on. There was a genuine concern that spiritual overseers and guides would approve of what was actually happening. Now, in spiritual marriage, I think there's even an application there too. Those who are your guides, your overseers, your mothers or fathers in the Lord or your elders and overseers, they commend Christ to you. But all we can say to you as well is, this man is suitable for you. This Lord Jesus Christ is the one that your soul needs. You need a spiritual relationship with him, a spiritual marriage where he becomes your overseer, your Lord, and your guide. But you have the power to accept or reject that. You have a power of veto over it. All we can say to you, too, is will you go with this man? This is the best thing for you, and this is the best person for you, but will you go with this man? The choice at the end of the day is the one that you have to make. She recognizes the wisdom of God in what Naomi is saying to her, and she says, all that you say to me, I will do. But I want you to notice a couple of things about this obedience. <clears throat> First of all, and this relates to what I've just said, it was a willing obedience. She decides to go ahead with this plan to which she could have said, I'm sorry, I'm not doing that. She could have said, I'm not doing that. But she decides to go ahead with it, not simply because she respects Naomi. That might be perilous on its own. But she decides to go ahead with it because she is drawn to Boaz herself. She has come to love him, to desire him. Why? Well, of course, a cynic would say that he's a wealthy man. And there are still, strange to say, a lot of women who marry much older men uh, just because they're well off. But you've only got to read this story to realize that that's not what's going on here. It's very obvious that Ruth's attraction to Boaz is a spiritual one. I am your maid servant. Take me under your wing, for you are my redeemer. <clears throat> Her attraction is spiritual, and I can't emphasize the importance of that enough. Beauty has always been important. Beauty has always been significant. It's got its own part to play. It's there and it's real, and everybody tries to cultivate as much of it as they can. But there's no denying that we live today in what you would call a highly visual age, um, where people lay greater emphasis on it. And in fact, people manufacture beauty so that it's not even real anymore. You've got the strange phenomenon of beauty being overrated, but at the same time not being properly appreciated because it's become false. 
I was reading recently about, and this takes us to female beauty, I'll come to the male in a moment, but it was an article about how a, a famous celebrity a few years ago, I'm not going to name her because it doesn't matter, but she was on the cover of a very popular magazine, and there was a description of, of her on the cover as being absolutely flawless, that she had the kind of appearance that everyone would aspire to have. You couldn't actually find a flaw in her appearance. Now, a reporter was interested in this and went behind the story, and lo and behold, he made a discovery. And that is that the person who had produced the photograph had actually got nearly £2,000 for doctoring the photograph. Now, I'm not going to tell you everything that was done in the photograph because I'd be here for quite a while. But I'll just tell you a few things. The woman's complexion was cleaned up, her eye line was softened, colour was added to her lips, her chin was trimmed, necklines were removed, blusher was added to her cheek, stray hairs were removed, her hair colour was adjusted, additional hair was added to the top of her head, and her neck muscles were softened, and so on and so on, and she was flawless. Well, we could all be. We could all be. The problem is, you see, that it begins gradually to set a standard for beauty that is ideal. And people gradually become disillusioned with reality. You look around and say, well, that doesn't come up to that. Never mind, I don't come up to it, but neither do you, and neither do you, and neither do you. It's quite possible And how many Christians might begin to be misled by this, that you cease to see beauty around you because you're looking for something that doesn't actually exist? See, the point is that the beauty of that woman doesn't actually exist in this world. That's the problem with it. It's not that she was stunningly beautiful, but she didn't exist. She didn't exist at all. And that really is the problem. Overexposure to an ideal and disillusionment with reality. How we need to see as the Lord sees. Man looks on the outward appearance and increasingly at something that isn't even that. But the Lord looks at the heart. Now you could read that to mean that only God can look at the heart. But that's not really the way we should read it. It's really an invitation for you to look at the heart as well. When Samuel that day was looking at which of Jesse's sons would make a king, he fell into a bit of a trap because one was tall and broad-shouldered and so on. And God said, no, 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 no. I am looking for the heart of the man. And so you, Samuel, you look for the heart of the man. In other words, it's not an issue of whether God alone can see the heart, not at all. It's it's all of us being able to see the heart, looking for the heart. And once you start to look for a heart, a heart after God, a real man, a real woman, these people will begin to be more physically beautiful in your eye as well. There's no doubt, I mean, this is the truth, that the more beautiful your character becomes, 
the more beautiful you become yourself. Beauty of character lends to you a quality that is called attractiveness. You become attractive. Now, you may be aware of lots of very glamorous people who are just not attractive. You'll also be aware of people who aren't quite so glamorous, but they have a real attractiveness about them, a beauty. That's because their inner person shines through. Now, Ruth is drawn here to a a man who's much older than herself, and she's drawn to him because he's a man of God. We saw that last Lord's Day. He has authority. He has dignity. He's able to rule his home. He has integrity. He has kindness, compassion. He recognizes good where he sees it. He's an honest man to deal with, and so on and so on. I don't know what he looked like, but that sounds good. And that really is beauty at the end of the day. It's what makes a person attractive. Um, It's interesting that men, too, have fallen into a similar trap. You could walk along a chemist and go to a men's section, and you'd be lucky to find a few razors and gel. But now the shelves are just as heavy as they are in the women's section. There's an obsession with getting a perfect appearance and building a perfect physique. And as that quest grows, your spirituality will decline. Everything that God really wants you to be just takes second place. Because you're falling in with the world. You're falling in with the world's magazines. That rubbish that you're looking at with its false ideals and its false priorities. Ruth is looking for a heart. She's looking for a man. A man. Do you remember that thing called a man? That's what she's looking for. And she finds it. She's drawn to him. Uh, Boaz perhaps is surprised. You are blessed, my daughter. He calls her daughter because that's the kind of relationship he would have normally expected. There's a, gener- there's a bit of a generation gap. Boaz is actually the son of Rahab the harlot. I don't know if you're aware of that, but that's who he is. Uh, I would imagine that this story must be set fairly early in the, in the life of the judges. Yeah, but that's who, that's who he is. And I think there's a bit of a generation gap, and he says, Blessed are you, you, you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. In other words, you've looked for something different, and that satisfies his heart too. She is drawn to him. Now, we too will never go to Christ unless we're drawn to Christ. I mean, I could try and matchmake you with the Lord. I could try all kinds of circumstances. I could try and engineer them to to bring you to Christ or to make you a Christian, to go into certain company and to go into certain situations, but but it's not going to work unless you personally are drawn to the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the 45th Psalm there, we read of the garments of our resurrected Lord as fragrant with aloes and myrrh and cassia, and that draws the people after him. It's, it's just his beauty as a resurrected Savior. 
We saw the descriptive passage in Song of Solomon chapter 5, which focuses on every part of him with his spiritual significance. We looked at that quite a while ago, actually, when we were in the school, and we might do it another time too, but it's just the beauty of the Lord, what he is as a Savior and as a Lord, how caring and kind and gracious and merciful and considerate, how he looks after your soul at every turn. But you must be drawn to that. You must feel your need of a spiritual marriage. You must feel your need of companionship with God. And you must feel, you must be brought to feel and desire that only the Lord Jesus Christ himself can provide that. That he's your connecting point with God. Through him, you'll be spiritually alive. She desires Boaz herself. She could have said no to her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law would have been quite gutted I'm sure if she had said no. But Ruth said, yes. I'll gladly do what you advise me to do because I see it is right. It's a bold obedience too. It involves her making what we would call here the first move. Now in natural marriage, maybe sometimes that's got to be the case too. Maybe some of you have quite traditional ideas on how these things work, but Maybe sometimes a girl has to just make a move like that herself. Maybe. Why not? If it's wise, if it's spiritual, if it's prayerful, why not? I'll say something about that in a minute too. But you'll notice that what she does here is really very, very bold. Now, in fairness, it's it's only fair to point out that some people actually object to what happens here. And they say that Naomi is trying to do something in a way that she shouldn't. And of course you can read it like that, if you so want to. Put clothes on, perfume, go down at night time, stay there in secrecy, and so on. But it's obvious in the passage that nothing happens. Naomi says that the whole town knows that you are a virtuous woman. And even when he says here, stay, uh, stay till the morning, it's specified that she stayed at his feet. It's hard, actually, to know exactly what's happening here, but it's obviously something to do with marriage. Perhaps even with a, an old marriage ritual. I know that in, amongst North American Indians, blankets were important. A blanket was given at a marriage and the husband and the wife were wrapped in a blanket. A blanket represents a protection, care and warmth and so on. And very definitely because of Ruth's words here, when when Boaz wakes up and he says, who are you? He says, she says, I'm Ruth. Take your maidservant under your wing for you are my redeemer. The wing is obviously there to her, the blanket, or the blanket to her is obviously the wing. We're we're meant to make that connection, you see. She sees the blanket as a wing. Coming under his blanket is coming under the wing. Now, that's important because we've already met that word. The very first time Boaz met Ruth, and when he wanted to know who she was, um, he said, it's been fully reported to me what you've done for your mother-in-law since your husband died. 
and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you didn't know before, may God repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. That's chapter 2 and verse 12. The Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come from refuge. Now, Boaz said that to her. You've come under the wing of God. And now she's coming to Boaz and saying, let me come under your wing too. God, I believe, has given me your wing, given me your care and protection. Let me come under it because you are my Redeemer. I can't help but think of the words of God uh, through Ezekiel when um, we're told how, how God loved the church. Uh, we read, God says, When I passed by you and looked upon you, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and I covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and I entered a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord. It's, um, it's not really too far, is it, to see Ruth as coming under the wing of God and coming under the wing of her Redeemer. That's exactly what is happening. She wants Boaz to spread his blanket over her. And that was boldness. That was boldness. After all, she has to make that move. Now, of course, when we turn to the spiritual side of this, is it not Christ who makes the first move? Well, yes, of course it is. In the sense that he comes to the threshing floor. He, he is calling us to himself. He's calling us all into that relationship with himself. You see, at the end of the day, you can't get over this fact that you have got to come under his wing. You've got to do that. You've got to come under his wing. Not everyone does. Do you remember these awful words of Luke thirteen thirty four? Christ's words to Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You were not willing. The wing is there. The protection and the care is there, and it's offered to you. But you were not willing. But here she is willing. And if you're willing, you'll be bold I suppose if there was a, a, a girl here who was thinking of doing, well, not this, but something similar, the fear of rejection would be there, would it not? Uh, men feel that. I think a woman would feel it far more intensely, a fear of rejection. 
But when it comes to the spiritual marriage here, you don't need to be afraid of that at all. There's an absolute guarantee of acceptance. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But, well, again, a girl might feel I'm not good enough or I'm not beautiful enough or whatever. Does that apply in the spiritual realm? Well, of course it does. None of us feel worthy enough to be Christians. None of us feel worthy enough to go to Christ and ask him to spread his blanket over us. Naomi, of course, asks Ruth to put beautiful clothes on and to make herself fragrant. Is there an application? I mean, can, can you make yourself beautiful for Christ? Well, in one way, no. Absolutely not. The old saying is true, you must come as you are. You must come as you are. On the other hand, I'd want to qualify that and say that there is something beautiful in you when you come to Christ. What is that? Self-denial. The psalm that we've been singing in connection with this over the last couple of weeks, and we'll sing it again, remind us of that. Daughter, take good heed, incline, bend down your ear, and give good ear to what? Thou must forget thy father's house, and kindred's, kindred most dear, thy beauty to the king shall then delightful be. And do thou humbly worship him because thy Lord is he. When is she beautiful? What is it that makes us beautiful when we are coming to Christ? Our willingness to come. Our willingness to forsake all else for him. To pluck out the eye, to cut off the hand, to renounce Moab, whatever it be, when we self-deny and forsake our father's house and our kindred to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is beautiful and fragrant in his sight and to his nose. Thy beauty to the king shall then delightful be. And it's in that spirit that we must go to the threshing floor too and ask Boaz, our Redeemer, to spread his blanket over us. So it's in that spirit that she goes. And uh, God willing, next time we'll see what comes of that. May the Lord bless our thoughts on his word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are conscious in reading of these people that we are led elsewhere. Just as it was said, a greater than Jonah is here. So we can say that a greater than Boaz is here too. And we pray to be willing ourselves to come under his wing for we will never come out of there. The care that he will exercise is one that he will exercise forever. And we pray that you would make us willing in a day of your power. Make us wise to seek the things that matter most, 
Make us attentive to the voice of God. Give us spiritual desires and longings that the world doesn't understand. Its beauty will always be skin deep, obsessed with the superficial, the unreal and the unattainable, things that always disillusion and disappoint. Reorientate our desires, O Lord. Grant us a new birth, new longings, for they shall be satisfied. In Christ's name, amen. Our last singing is again in Psalm 45, this time on page 269. And we sing to the tune Carlisle. Now we've been singing verse 10 and 11 over the last two or three weeks. But I want us to relate them more to verses 7 and 8 this time. Page 269, where the attention falls on the, again on the beauty of the king. Thou lovest right and hate still. For God, thy God, most high above thy fellows, has with the oil of joy anointed thee. So here is a, an anointed Christ, full of beauty, of myrrh and spices sweet, a smell thy garments had out of the ivory palaces whereby they made thee glad. And then... In verse 10, O daughter, take good heed, incline and give good ear. Thou must forget thy kindred all and father's house most dear. Now you'll notice that what makes her go is the king's beauty. She's drawn to the king's beauty. And on his part, he's drawn to her self-denial. Thy beauty to the king shall then delightful be. And do thou humbly worship him, because thy Lord is he beautiful to each other? Verses 7 to 11, let's stand to sing.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.